And then it ends up being the question of, or, you know, that, that quip about common sense not being very common. Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, you're saying having a bunch of people with, you know, a diverse viewpoint, um, putting them together is better than just trying to make one person do something else. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a roundtable discussion covering a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Your hosts, Jason Thompson, John Naran, Jen Coons, and myself, Jim Driscoll, all live in different areas of the world, but work together in the same company. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. I didn't know we were supposed to wear collared shirts today either. Someone didn't send me the memo. This is, I'm in business casual. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. And my colleagues, the teddy bears in the next room, really <laughs> appreciate it when I put on a good face. Fair enough. Sorry I'm late. No worries. This should be fun. I don't think, uh, I don't even think I need to be here. I think we kick the ball off. Kick the ball off? Well, that, that's rolling. what I was just saying. The, the, the way I was the way I was wording it was is, um, you know, the, the, just I got the idea for the topic from Randy's comment on Twitter about new agey business shit, and so I'm like, you know what? Let's get the four of us together, and then I'll stir the pot and wind Randy up, and then I just step back and uh, and, and let Randy go. I agree. That would be fantastic. And are you are you full on dad mode? What's with the uh, glasses here? Uh, yeah, pretty much since I'm not sleeping, the contacts are drying out. So, uh, so I'm wearing my glasses more and more because also just like during the day, I'm noticing at this point, my contacts, since they're drying out, like I can't even focus on the screen. So I'm like, yeah, I got to wear. Are you wearing, are you, we, we, we used, will you stand up for a minute? Are you wearing jean shorts and sandals with white socks? Please tell me well, you are. I am, uh, I am already standing. I'm at a standing desk, but I am not wearing jean shorts. Uh, I'm I don't believe that for a second. I don't either. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a picture afterwards, but I am wearing flip flops <laughs> with white socks. Please, please be white. No, no, no white socks. <laughs> All right. J- Jason's been getting a kick out of you know me for like the last month, especially like the last two weeks where I've been completely scatterbrained. No, it's That's what happens fun. when you don't get sleep. It's been fun. What are you? Do you have a cute little espresso mug? I yeah. Do I figured have... we're talking about new ag business stuff, so I'm totally embracing. The okay. topic and getting in character. No, I'm I was do a I, pour over halfway through this and take like eleven <laughs> minutes to make a single cup of coffee. Uh, okay, we're gonna get into that, but I was just—it wasn't as much giving him a hard time about being spaced out in that it was giving him a hard time about he had a baby and he went from non non baby gym to baby gym to dad Jim like in a snap and he's like out out in his front yard doing yard work yelling at the neighbors for being on the lawn <laughs> like he went full on dad mode right overnight it was like this re- repressed persona <laughs> <laughs> well is either that or I, I was thinking about the other week or so ago you're like yeah I, I really enjoy post baby Jim I'm like well it's probably because I've chilled out at work because I used to be, you know, work was my only focus. So I was so high strung at work. Now I'm chilled out at work because I'm high strung with the baby. You know, all that all that energy is going toward the baby. Yeah, it happens. 
It happens. All right. I'm sure everyone wants to hear us bust on Jim for for being dad Jim. But what uh, <laughs> what are we actually here to talk about with this amazing panel of guests that we have? Yeah, I mean, like th- this one, it's it, it's one I. I th- I, I don't have a detailed description. Again, I, I liked Randy's comment about new agey business stuff. You know, get the get you, Evan, and and he together to to talk about that. So I'm trying to remember the context of of that thread and where exactly that that comment came from. But um, you know, and, and just before you joined, you know, Randy you know, and I were talking. We're like, yeah, well, you know, we, you know, we he and I worked at another company which no longer exists. And so we're like, yeah, we, we, we could talk about new agey business stuff there and how that, that, that impacted that company. All right, let's do it. Why don't, is, is that the best place of any to kick it off? I, I, th- I think so. All right. How about it? Ah, uh, let's see. I mean, <laughs> I'm well, no, I'm trying to think like, where, where could we start with that place? I mean, Randy, I'm trying to remember when you entered and exited, um, because you know, at one point we had multiple turnovers in management, um, and then like every six months there was a new focus, and the, the the culture itself would would never change. It would just be change in focus and word only, just to just to keep people keep people well, going. Well, well, and they bring people in, and this is an interesting intersection with with Evan and what he's built, building out with with his new company core is that that's a huge focus of it, right, Evan? Where where you're talking about culture and changing it, but it's a very applied, very real compared to a lot of these companies. And I've been part of that where they bring in outside experts to talk about the culture. And it's very, I, I don't want to say new agey because I'm into some new agey stuff. So I don't want it to sound bad, but it's you, 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 you end up leaving the meeting feeling good, but then you go back to your day to day job the next day and we didn't solve anything. Yeah. It's, it, well, it's probably a, a big part of like what's real versus what's not real, you know, because culture has very real threads that you can go down and, and talk about, and, and it has very fake ones. And, um, you know, I, it's funny, like if you look at, I think it's Fortune magazine or all these different <clears throat> magazines uh, have these best places to work rankings, right? And the culture is talked about in a lot of these places. But what's really funny is, calling some of these companies best places to work is kind of like calling certain universities best places to go to school based on how much awesome drinking and extracurricular stuff there is. Like this college is located right next to the mountain so you can snowboard every day. So it's a great university. And you're like, it's a great location for a university and a great, <laughs> but, but the, the actual point of the university is the education, the skill building and the qualifications that you gain along the way. And, as you rest and recharge, you should be doing a lot of fun stuff. So the, so the school should be fun. But in the best places to work rankings, a lot of them are really terrible places to work, but great places to be. Because the work sucks, but the rest of it's really cool. It's like we've got our rock climbing wall, and we've got our movies on the yard, and we've got you know a bunch of budget for you guys to go to the spaghetti factory. But when you actually want to do work, everybody argues and isn't that competent and stuff like that. So it's just like this really fun campus where there's not a lot going on in terms of what the whole point is. And I think that's probably where a lot of culture gets off the tracks is they say, oh, we're having turnover, do some culture stuff, which to them means let's go bowling. But the culture should start at the work itself and then work outwards to the fun, not 
try to surround the work with a wall of fun so that people yeah. can't get out. No, that's a, a good point. And I'm really interested in, in Randy's thoughts because, you know, recently, Randy, in your, your past, you have, I think, two really polar extremes. You worked for a very, very large company that had a, uh, I'll, I'll just say, interesting culture to it. And now you work for a company that, at least on the outside, looks really cool and hip, but is also doing some very uh, cutting edge things. And I'm interested in what you see comparing and contrasting as far as what just organically you know is, is happening in those two companies in your experience and then maybe more um, what those companies are, are doing from a focus on building the right environment for for its employees to to innovate and, and create really cool things boy that's a big question uh, I, I ask I ask good questions I or so I've been told yeah so I mean you know Prior to, to my my current company, you know, I was working at a big, big megacorp. So, you know, 100,000 people, very large media company in Philadelphia. Um, and you two single-handedly put that company out of business? I wish. <laughs> Where'd you say? No, no, where no, you no, was a different one. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was like, that's, that's an achievement. No. <laughs> so they will live on for for a very long time but um yeah and so when you work at a company that you know itself is a holding company for you know a dozen large brands and within that every department is like its own small company you know you do you do get into some odd cultures and you know evan was talking about best places to work and 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 this place is one of those best places to work and and you look at the ratings and you go really this is <laughs> what are what are we what are we judging this on and usually you know it comes down to benefits or um you know things that they say like work life balance and you know all those things are important obviously you know most people work to support you know themselves or a family um but when you come down to it you know the work sucks and you you come to work and you say well I'm not really, I'm not really interested in this topic, you know, wonder what time lunch is, you know, all these sort of auxiliary things that have nothing to do with work per se. Um, they're really, you know, trying to mask the fact that you don't enjoy what you're doing. Um, so luckily I did get away from that. Uh, I went over to a company called OmniSci. Um, we focus, you know, the, the high level summary I think would just be high performance computing. Um, we happen to do it with, with GPUs, uh, video cards, um, which really leads to some interesting intersections. Um, I just published a post actually yesterday about uh, recording video game data into a database um, and then displaying it in real time. And so people can drive in our booth at, at events, uh, can actually drive around a racetrack and you actually see their speed and you're accumulating this data in uh, a database. And then, you know, just because you have, you know, all of this uh, computing horsepower, you can do all sorts of, you know, interesting things with, you know, relaying the data back and, and rendering the data on, um, on GPUs and sending pictures back. And, and so, you know, you're right, Jason, it, it really is a polar opposite in, in the fact of, you know, culture, um, you know, the, the types of work and, you know, I'm sure it comes as no surprise that I enjoy what I'm doing now much more than I have uh, at some of those larger companies in the past. What are you seeing, Evan? You're, you're kind of on the ground and you, you get, um, 
you get a pretty broad view of, of what's happening across the spectrum. I know you work with all sorts of, of companies, small, large, established, newly uh, up and up and going. Um, what are you seeing as far as what they've tried in the past? You know, we, we kind of labeled this new agey business bullshit, I think is what we labeled this. What, what, have, what have you seen companies kind of doing that has fallen short? And specifically, what is what are you kind of positioning to the market? I, I'm, you know, I'm following all the content you're creating on LinkedIn and other places where you're really trying to force people and companies to think different. Um, um, and I'm not, and I'm not pitching, I'm not positioning to pitch you a softball to pitch what, what you're doing, but, but really more, more interested in, in kind of what, what that positioning looks like. Again, comparing and contrasting, we, you know, we had Randy with these two polar opposites. I'm interested in your viewpoint as a kind of an outsider seeing these polar opposites of what you're positioning versus what you may be seeing companies that have, they've tried things that have maybe fallen short. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like. I'll echo Randy on this. That's a big question. So I'll try to do like a flyover and then we'll maybe pick it apart piece by piece. Um, but it companies are in adoption curves of these things, right? So it, it's the same as like a technology adoption curve that a few people own the iPhone when it first came out and then more people and then more people and more people. So it's the same thing with all of the, the culture stuff that's going on. And I... I talk to a lot of people, it, it comes up all the time, like Harvard Business Review articles. And what's interesting about them is that they kind of represent this inflection point in the adoption curve of a cultural element or a business practice. And if you look at the last 10 covers in a row, they're all about stress and overcommitment and culture and engagement and competence and you know these these meta topics that are kind of like, how could we be good in our day-to-day if we weren't good at people being engaged or if we weren't good at people being happy and enthusiastic or whatever the case might be? And the inherent problem with, yeah, there you, okay, what does that one say? The age of continuous connection. So you don't even need to read that. That's everything you need to know right on the cover. But the, uh, the, the problem with HBR is that it's lagging. It's it's you're already in the middle early majority or at least the early majority of the adoption curve by the time something hits that cover, because if you open that cover up and read the article, you're going to find a lot of statistics and studies and multiple companies that have been through it that are sizable. So these are stories about things that have been going on for years now. And then you read a fast company or an ink magazine, you see stuff that's a little bit more bleeding edge. Um, and they're less careful, I guess you would say, with their publishing because they're more they're more apt to publish stuff that has less evidence built underneath it. And what's funny is if you read any of these, you'll fe- you'll see articles like I remember seeing one in HBR about a year and a half ago, and it was about how storytelling increases the ROI. And the study they did was they went to an art gallery. And they brought in a group of people and they asked their willingness to pay for different pieces of art that just had the name of the piece and the price. And then they brought in another group, another group of people and asked them their willingness to pay. And underneath each of the works, there was now the name, the price, but a story about what the piece of art was about and why it was made. And the prices of the art with the story, the willingness to pay was like, anywhere from 15 to I think 30% higher as a result of the story. And I'm sitting in my chair reading this saying, I cannot believe that somebody doesn't already know this, <laughs> right? Like, and, and, 
and that's why the adoption curve happens with these ideas and with things in general is because some people are creative and open-minded and accepting of these things that will create value on the front end and other people have to wait for somebody else to try them and then prove to them beyond the shadow of a doubt that doing this obvious thing creates value and be precise about how much value 15 to 30 percent so we can expect 18.73 percent at our company by telling stories and they implement it with a complete lack of authenticity right so they they implement this you know let's <laughs> it's kind of funny because i think you and i were talking jason about authenticity a couple weeks ago and how companies are like let's be more authentic which is like the least authentic thing you can say <laughs> because if we're more authentic people will like us more so you're kind of like oh you're doing it because of some transactional like outcome that you're hoping for which is kind of antithetical right so what i'm seeing in general is the businesses on the front end like i like working with companies that are either larger but ready for kind of a new era or smaller companies in general who are just trying to avoid falling into pits, um, f trying to avoid promoting the wrong person as they grow fast, trying to avoid saying the wrong things at the all hands meetings that are getting, you know, misconstrued and take people in different directions. And then you, I see on the other side, companies where I'm kind of in there to be a sounding board because they're like, we're going to do this. And I'm like, oh God, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> like, and let me, let me dissect why that's not going to go the way you hope it will. And those companies are much more prone to take these tools that the things that are in HBR, the things that are, you know, earlier in these other publications or get talked about on Twitter from like Keith uh, Raboy or, or uh, Naval or people like that who are kind of these uh, awesome people on Twitter. Um, they take that and they use those tools to manipulate people as opposed to really embracing them authentically. And there's a psychological reason for that because they just kind of are lower on the openness scale and higher on the conscientiousness scale so their life is much more orderly and organized and sequenced and proven and it's less creative by nature so it's it's more borrow and steal rather than create as a technique to optimize the business and all that really needs to happen is we just need a better mix of people thinking about what we should be doing in business we don't need uncreative people to start being more creative we just need both of them to talk to each other because the uncreative people i'm using kind of a a mean descriptor there in a sense i hope it's not taken that way but the people who are more traditional and less open-minded to new and different ways of doing things also have a lot of important things that that we should maintain as we try new things moving forward so it's the conversation between the multiple types that's the most valuable thing so, go ahead randy i was gonna say that i think that's an interesting point you know having because you, you know a little further back you're saying well I, I can't believe that people don't know this and then it ends up being the question of or you know that that quip about common sense not being very common um you know it sounds like you know you're saying having a bunch of people with you know a diverse viewpoint um putting them together is better than just trying to make one person do something else yeah, I mean, if you go to my website now, you'll see that the headline is this notion of superhuman intelligence. And there's a limit to every person's intelligence. Part of it is just, you know, intelligence, but that's not the part I'm not interested in. I'm interested in the part that with all of our psychologies come value systems and with value systems come bias systems. 
And what's really interesting about bias is bias has been researched top to bottom. And, you know, there's still a lot more research to do, but there's so much research on bias. And the most interesting thing that I found on the research on bias is, and, and the thing that the fewest people seem to understand is that not everybody has the same types of bias. So if we walk into a room and we say, oh, everybody's biased, we, you know, we kind of throw our arms up and we just kind of deal with it. But if we realize that my bias and your bias and Jason's bias are different from each other, then we can actually intentionally cover those biases and eliminate them to say, you know, if, if one person in a room in a meeting, you know, in some big company is very low in compassion and one person is very high, they're going to see the situation totally differently. And when they both share the way they see the situation, they can both end up smarter than either one of them is capable of being because of the bias that limits their intelligence. And I just kind of define intelligence as how it's like chess, you know, how good of a move are you about to make? And the more intelligent player will make better moves. They'll make fewer mistakes and they'll make those moves faster. And that's, that's the objective of business is to make as many awesome moves as you can, as quickly as you can, particularly in a competitive setting. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially, you know, if, if I take a small tangent, um, I, I think this is where, you know, like some of those bad decisions, um, you know, for example, um, the canonical one to me is, is open offices, right? And, you know, that decision is probably being made by extroverted people, not realizing that they're just completely wiping out the value that introverted people bring in their workplace. And so, you know, like you say, you know, a bunch of people getting together, not recognizing that bias. Now, of course, everybody looks at it and goes, well, of course, open offices are bad, you know, spread disease and they're so loud and people hide <laughs> from each other. And, you know, but, you know, you didn't have to go a couple, a couple years back when everybody's like, well, this is the best thing since, uh, you know, yeah, it's, I, that's a really a spread disease. I hadn't thought about that one yet, but, but actually it's funny because open office floor plans come, come up a lot in, in what I do and the people I talk to. And, uh, you know, I, I, well, the conversation always turns to, well, why did you, why did you build an open office floor plan for what purpose? And they always say, well, because Google did it. And I said, well, and they said, it's been a disaster. Right. And I, I say, okay, well, again, you know, you have to think about why you did it. You just did it because somebody else did it. And then we need to look at Google. Is, is Google changing their floor plans? I mean, they have unlimited resources, so are they changing their floor plans? And by and large, they're not. And you go, okay, well, maybe open office floor plans are really good. Maybe they're really bad. But maybe the answer is actually that they're really good in some contexts and really bad in other contexts. So if you're working on Gmail and you've got an iOS app and you've got an Android app and you've got a web interface and you've got all these translations and other features that have to plug in with chat and hangouts and all these other kinds of things, an open office floor plan is probably amazingly good because the person who works on hangouts walks by your desks and sees something that you're working on and goes, hey, what's that thing? And we need to stay in sync. So the notion of being interrupted is phenomenal for Google's business model because speed and focus is not as valuable as consistency across the product line. So and let me, so let me ask you a question to follow up on that, because I, I think it, it, it lends into where I wanted to go next was, so you, we just had this conversation about how can all of this stuff not be common sense. And if I can look at a magazine cover, I already know what the, the content is and what we should do. My question is then, 
why aren't more companies doing it? And why are so many companies asking the question, like, how can we do fill in the blank? How can we treat our employees better? How can we be more authentic? How can we whatever if it's so much common sense? And so I want to come back to what you just mentioned. Is it the fact that we're reading all these articles, we're going out to all these conferences, we're seeing all these case studies and we're saying, okay, that's the answer and we're going to take it and apply it directly as written. Are you saying that that's part of the problem? Is it that the solutions are not necessarily the wrong ones, but they're wrong if we just take it as is and don't apply it to what our specific needs are as a company? Um, I'm going to take us to a dark place for a second. Uh, okay. Because it's important, I think. <laughs> um, the, the the fundamental reason that companies look the way they look is because the people who are best at achieving power are the ones who want power as a life goal. I mean, it's not it's not a surprise. I, I I like to kid with people that you know over my shoulder I've got a few guitars that I play, and I'm not that great of a guitar player. But if I had practiced guitar. It's, All day, it's pretty, every day. It's pretty good. I, it is good. I think you saw yourself well, short there. Don't but screw up my metaphor. To who? Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so, I, I, you know, I, let's let's say I'm medium. Um, but if I had been practicing guitar every day of my life, most of the day since age six, I would be incredible at guitar. And there aren't very many people on earth who have who have practiced that long and and with that much focus at guitar. But there are quite a few people who, from age six to age forty-five, have practiced all day, every day, manipulating people, <laughs> right? And they're really good at it, and they know that it helps them achieve their goal of of gaining power. And that's why you see lots of people. I mean, there there's different, there's distinctly different types of of what I would consider natural leaders in humanity. So you have people who are leaders because of their abilities and, and they're, they are experts at things. And you have people who are leaders because they know when change is needed and they really kind of spearhead, uh, the cha- they drive the wedge into the world and start to split it open when it's needed. And then, but there's also throughout all of history, this recurrent theme of there are leaders who really aren't particularly good at the thing that they're leading. Um, you know, they're not experts. They're not really trying to change the world. They just are trying to kind of squeeze the world for for juice. And they very successfully and very repeatedly become leaders. And I started thinking about that a lot after reading all this stuff I've read. And I just kind of came to that conclusion that if you wanted power your whole life, you'd probably be pretty damn good at getting it. And if that was like your end goal, your end goal wasn't like to get that power to make the world a better place, but you certainly realize that by telling people you're getting that power to make the world a better place, it makes you more likely to get the power, right? So, so that's that's the reason is that most, a lot of companies, not most, a lot of companies have people in power, and there there was a study that was done a few years ago that concluded that over one quarter of Fortune 500 CEOs are clinical psychopaths. Which, which all that means in, its, in, in more scientific terms is that they literally have zero compassion. They, they do not feel the human consequences of their plans or their actions in any way whatsoever. There's no remorse that you hurt somebody. And you hear these phrases, you know, it's not personal, it's business, right? Well, I happen to believe that business is one of the most personal things that there is. I, I feel the opposite. 
So that's, that's why it's happening. Because when you don't have compassion, you don't feel what other people feel, and you don't care about the human effect uh, as much as you care about the power effect and the goal achievement. You know, you're trying to drive a quarterly goal or trying to make shareholders happy or whatever it is that you have to do in order to keep that power train chugging along. Um, if you don't have compassion, then you have no reason to create a great culture and a great workplace. All you need to do is is check the box on your goal. And if it's checked, it can be Machiavellian and and you're done. You're good and you're covered. And then somebody come around and say, you know, boy, this sure did create a lot of collateral damage. And you say, well, the collateral damage wasn't my goal, right? The, we, we met the goal, but now we'll go make a goal for the collateral damage. And it allows companies to kind of zigzag their way through the world. So that's it. It's just, it's, it's that people who are principally concerned with power, that is pretty much synonymous with being low in compassion. And then you get that power and, and that you have that low compassion. So you have a lack of care. You have no fucks to give. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, that's what's really happening. So turning the ship, and what I, what I love about HBR is it's kind of proving that compassion has a return on investment and can align with the goals of capitalism. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And the more that we can blend that, um, and, and, and I guess, Randy, you said earlier that my, where my head goes is why we, why we don't understand this and, and how it surprises me that people don't understand this is business is just a bunch of humans. So it shouldn't surprise us that human stuff works really well in business, right? It's like, it's not... That's why I'm, I'm so dumbfounded by it. Like humans love stories and business is a bunch of humans. So it stands to reason that stories in business will be loved by humans and that that will work out pretty well. But other people who are less compassionate don't really care about the human element. So they lose touch with those types of values. I know that's a, a long answer, but hopefully. No, that was, one. it was good. And I, and I went from no longer being scared, but I went to being depressed I know it's and it's depressing, but it's also it's also really important uh, to face reality so that when we hash out plans for how to move things forward, that they're actually plans that stick to the to the reality that's out there. And they're not attempting to stick to some fake reality that doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, you, you reminded me of of college um, in grad school. And I know college isn't the cool thing to like do because everyone's so anti higher education right now. Um <laughs> But uh, I had one class um, in in graduate school that I, I clearly remember as being a life-changing moment for me. And the entire course was comparing the management and cultural styles of the prince with the Tao Te Ching. Um, it's when I started getting into Taoism and Buddhism um, after that. And I left that knowing that if I was ever to build a business... I was going to build a business based more on Lao Tzu than Machiavelli. <laughs> um, but the consensus was that if you want to build a feel-good business where people are happy, you, you go down the route of the Tao. If you want to build a business that's going to change the world and make lots and lots of money, you go down the path of, of the prince. Um, and I I want to believe in what you said, that there's some kind of medium um, point in there. And, and I guess that's why I love Patagonia. Um, so so much is I I believe that they've found that that middle point, but 
it seems like there's there's often those those extremes. In fact, I, I've heard it firsthand. You know, we've had the opportunity to have a couple companies for who knows why interested in having conversations about purchasing 33 sticks, even though that's that's not a conversation. It's not up for debate. But one of the things they do is they come in and they kind of look at what we're doing and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? Like you could be making so much more money every year. And I'm and my answer is always, I know, but all of my people would be miserable. So I, I got to believe there's some kind of happy medium where we, we continue to make more money, but we don't put at risk the happiness of our people. Yeah, it's it's unreal. I mean, I've had that conversation with many people of if we want to make 10% more money this year, 15% more money this year, we could quadruple our stress. You know, and I think you just have to look at where the lines cross, and that's what I think you you do a nice job of and very few people do a nice job of again because of that compassion element that if you lack compassion, you don't you don't feel um, the the negative impact of those of pushing harder. You, you see the opportunity to make ten, fifteen percent more uh, to the bottom line, which is a significant amount. But I, it, it, you know, there's also that trade off of how much more stress do we bring into the environment in order to hit that number. And what what I've found is that. If you, if you kind of step back and take a longer-term view, what you'll also realize is that in those times of stress and pushing much harder, you also create a lot more scar tissue and inefficiency, and you kind of architect quick fixes and duct tape things together. And then you get 24, 36 months down the road, and particularly in products, you see this a lot, ship things out the door, get them out quickly. And then 36 months down the road, the architecture literally can't stand anymore. It, 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 it's breaking under its own volume or, um, you know, little stuff like, and, and we saw this in the early days of, of iPhones, right, that applications with memory leaks would just kind of cripple themselves over time. And that's what organizations do is they have these little leaks inside of them and then they start to grind and grind and grind. And it's not uncommon for product organizations, even ones that are very well respected in our industry and in others, to have 50, 60, 70, 75% of their engineering bandwidth going toward fixing bugs and technical debt rather than building new product. And you go like, that's three, three quarters of a very highly paid workforce is in the cancer removal business most of the year. It's, yeah. it's, it's really unbelievable. So I, I don't know that we're ever going to have a, a nice era where we have uh, long-term focused people outnumbering and outpowering short-term focused people. But we can be a lot better about um, showing what that looks like. And I do think that we're in, we're in an era where it's, it's getting a lot better. I mean, there's more businesses doing it right now and not making that sacrifice and trade because turnover is so much of a bigger risk mm. for people now. And, and that's one of the, I think one of the benefits of remote work as a, as a movement is that it increases the stakes for turnover like really dramatically and the economy's good and everything's kind of all happening at the same time right now. So companies have to be on their best behavior. And I just hope more of them decide to not be on their best behavior because they're pretending, but to be on their best behavior because it's, it, it only makes sense. Yeah. 
No, that's a great point. Randy, I'm interested in your thoughts. I think you're in a very unique position where you work for a, a company in Silicon Valley, but you're based in Philly. So you've kind of got a, a foot in both worlds. And I, we continue to see a lot of thought leadership come out of Silicon Valley, especially on LinkedIn and other platforms that are basically saying, if you know, if we're not working 20 hours a day, if we're not running as fast as we can to the point of bending over and puking and passing out, then we're losers. You know, it's all about to 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 Evan's point, some of these short term thinking, so we can build up a facade to get more and more investment. Um, what what are you seeing? Um, and again, I think you're in a unique position because you you work for a company in the valley, um, but you're not necessarily based there, and so you have two different worlds that you're you're part of. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely a lot of that hustle, 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 grind, you know, weird mentality um, that I, I think comes out of, you know, as you put, Silicon Valley. Um, not being, you know, in that environment, I, I actually literally just flew back from San Francisco last night, so I was just there. Um, you know, you, you do get that feeling. I mean, you know, just driving down the street, the billboards you see, right, you don't see, um you know, consumer products, you see B2B billboards, right? You know, the, you know, you need, you know, this product you've never heard of, right? It's going to, you know, get 10% more, <laughs> you know, as I've been saying for me, you know, being removed from that environment, um, and also being removed from an, an office environment in general has really, you know, really helps me focus on what it is that we actually want to achieve. You know, my my current role is really to inspire other people um, to think about their problems, um, especially if they need to do uh, analytics at a very fast pace and, you know, in the, in the millisecond type range. And it's kind of ironic that not being part of that really high pressure environment that I would consider the California-ish area being, um, you know, I can actually take a step back and focus and say, okay, well, what are the things that I need to do? What are the problems I think people have and actually build these things? And there's, you know, that, that saying, what is it, you know, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? We can sit here and, and plan out what we're going to do and then, you know, actually, you know, do things at, at a very high pace in, in, in lower uh, amounts of hours. And so, you know, I'm, I think, lucky, one, in my role that I don't have to, or not in my role, in the company, um, we, we don't have that, um, you know, that constant 20-hour, you know, churn, 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 you know, nobody's leaving here until this product ships. You know, we don't do that, and, and I think we're better off for it. Yeah, and, you know, to, to piggyback off of what you just said there about, you um, the slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yeah, yeah, I think actually the Navy SEALs say go slow to go fast. I think that's one of the, the core things there. And, you know, that what they mean is like if you're in the middle of something and you need to reload or, you know, you don't want to rush it and sit there like, <laughs> you know, kind of bumbling around with it. You you want to get it right on the first try. And I think the the most interesting thing that I found in, in the last eight or nine years of reading and research that I've done on this stuff is uh, correlations with life success uh, on the personal level and how that can be carried over to the business level. And the, the, the most correlated 
personality trait with success is called conscientiousness. And conscientiousness essentially breaks down into how industrious, how hardworking you are, and how organized you are. And we all know people like this who are just super organized. They're like their own project manager for life, and they've just got all their ducks in a row. Um, and they're very hardworking and focused. And the, the only problem with that is that the number one most correlated f- factor of, of success for a person, so outside of personality, is IQ. And it is six times more correlated with success than conscientiousness. So what you just said is, let's, let's make smart moves, not just work hard all the time. And the reason that it's six times more correlated is because IQ, you, it, it, the more IQ you have in the way that this, this works in the research, is that you make fewer mistakes, you create less waste, you go the wrong direction fewer times. You spend less of your time on less valuable things because the, the intelligence that's fueling what you decide to do when you are in your acting time is so much higher. And you, you see quotes from Abraham Lincoln and Albert Einstein and many others that talk about these things. Like Abraham Lincoln said, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. It's, it's, this is so consistent that the smartest, greatest people in history have said, I'm going to try to make sure that I get it right the first time. And that's what's going to make me really fast. And what's cool about IQ and intelligence is most people think that if we sit around and plan, right, that sounds like time. They hear plan and they hear long time. And the truth is that when we get really good at intelligence as an organization, so let's leave this IQ on individual level behind for a second because in companies that's not that important. We don't need a bunch of ultra high IQ individuals. We need the IQ of all individuals aggregating in the company. And again, because of that bias, that's how we remove the mistake making that even high IQ people have is we by addressing bias and creating organizational IQ. Then when we do the work, we can be a little bit less hardworking and a little bit less nose to the grindstone. And then when we do the work, it's really, really good. And we don't make as many mistakes and we don't spend resources on things that don't work. And mistake avoidance is much more real and much more accessible than most companies realize. So within an organization, who has the power to make that change? Uh, you know, I think as in as employees, we've always um, we've always said the fish stinks from the head down because it's our way of saying we we can't control anything. If our environment sucks, it's because our leaders suck. So we're just out of luck. Is that true? I mean, as a as an employee, if I'm in a bad environment, but I see these tools and things that we want to change, do I? Or if I'm in middle management, do it? Can I have any impact? Um, yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think it's it, it's unfair in in order to get that impact, and you have to just get you have to get that uh, through your head that it's going to be unfair, and that's unfair, which is the definition of unfair, right? So it's like it's you're going to have to do a lot more work. So, for example, you'll you'll have to become an amazing storyteller. Let's say, for example, as an analyst. Everybody's asking you for average conversion rate and average this and average that and aggregate number of this and all these types of or average order value and all these types of things, right? And you as an analyst know that averages aren't that meaningful from a data perspective or a decision-making perspective, right? If our 
you know, we, the old example of average time on site might, might be one minute. But if you were to actually build a histogram of time on site, you would find that there's a very high bar around zero seconds and a very high bar around five or 10 seconds. And then there's like this huge horseshoe shaped dip in the middle. And then there's a second peak for people who spend more time and that kind of has a long tail to it. And the average is in the middle of the valley, right? So if you report on an average to a group of people, most people walk away thinking, oh, the average is what most people did. Most people were on the site for a minute. And you go, no, most people were on the site either not very long at all or for several minutes. The fewest number of people that come to our site represent the average. And it's, it's so you, the story is literally the opposite of the truth. And if you take action on that, then you, um, then you make the, the wrong decisions. And, you know, the IQ thing weigh, weighs in there, right? You make, you take some, some bad steps in the wrong direction. So what you have to realize is that as that analyst, you're in this unfortunate and completely unfair position of having to spend 15 minutes explaining something instead of 15 seconds explaining something. You're going to have to craft a story. You're going to have to build the histogram. You're going to have to show people. You're going to have to demonstrate and tell stories and examples like you're a politician in order to teach people that averages are super awful and super bad. And it applies to conversion rate and it applies to everything that we do. Like there's the average is probably a gigantic misrepresentation of the truth and certainly isn't what quote unquote most people are doing. And that sucks, but that's life, right? And, and you're blessed with the intelligence and you're blessed with the skills to tell that story. So you have to do all of the extra work. And think about if you were like a philosopher or an author in a terrible political regime and you wanted to make a very simple point publicly, what are you going to do? You're going to have to write a whole play in order to make that point. And it's going to have to be a satire. And you're going to have to spend years just saying hey, maybe we shouldn't be so mean to women, right? Like <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to have to take this huge arc to make a very simple point that you should just be able to make. And that's just how it works. So anybody can, can jump on it, but you just have to sign yourself up for a lot of extra work in order to get there and realize that your role is as the storyteller, not the point maker. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what would be, and, and this is open for anybody, what, what are our recommendations um, or what do, we, what do we want people to walk away from this conversation having learned um, and pointed in a direction of, I, I want to do better, whether it's in my personal life or business life. And again, whether I'm uh, you know, a new employee, I'm in middle management, I'm an executive, to work towards building a better environment for people. What are, what are the things that we want people to walk away from? What can I, where can I research? What can I learn? What, how can I become better as an individual? And then, and then, um, Evan and, and, um, and team are going to come back and say, wait, yeah, it's too, too difficult. So too loaded of a question. Randy's probably shaking his head, but what, you know, what, what, what tangible things can, cause this is a big, this is a big topic, right? And I think it's, it's an entertaining discussion. Um, but if I'm a listener and I want to say, okay, this I'm really interested in this. I, I like the direction, but I feel lost and confused. Where do I start? Where do I go? I, Randy, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to go back, you know, the authenticity part, um, 
is the one that I always grab onto. And, and I, I think by a lot of accounts have had a successful career, um, and have also done a lot of unsuccessful things. Um, and throughout the, um, throughout the whole thing, I've always tried to be myself. And, and unfortunately that's worked against me in, in a lot of, a lot of different environments. Um, but when I have gotten in that right environment and, you know, give sort of my authentic self and people recognize what it is that I'm trying to say and what it is I'm trying to bring, um, to the culture, um, you can have a lot of success. So rather than me try and, you know, smooth all the rough edges down and say, oh, you know, you're absolutely right. The leader, the leader is the, you know, greatest leader I've ever had. You know, my boss is the smartest person that, that on the planet. You know, I've really never been that person, but rather saying, you know, yes, but, you know, I think we could try this differently. And so I think for me, you know, no matter where you are in your career, you know, finding the environment where you can be authentic is, is probably the, the greatest path to success. Because, you know, as Evan said, trying to force people, people can only go so much in one direction. You know, I'd rather get 10% better at something I'm already really good at than trying to get, you know, 20% better at something I'll never be good at. And so, you know, that's sort of where I see things, you know, as you're trying to improve yourself or you're trying to improve the culture of your company or anything else is, you know, try and find those areas that you can be successful and, and focus on that um, as opposed to focusing on something that you can't be authentic or something that you're not, not interested in. It's, it's such a, it's such a valuable point. Um, and I think even later in, in people's careers, I, we, we fail to recognize that, but such, such great advice for, for folks that are, are, are new in their careers because we, and, and maybe this isn't the case, maybe this is more old school thinking, but I, I know when I grew up and came out of school, I was brainwashed with the idea of find the company that's going to pay you the most and give you the best benefits. That's how you evaluate. And if, if a company's going to pay you, you know, 2% more, go to work for that company. And it wasn't until later in my career that I started to understand that there was another component to that. It was also finding a company that had the right culture and fit that allowed me to be happy, that allowed me to be innovative, that allowed me to be more creative. And I just don't think a lot of people think about that until later in their career when they start evaluating, why have I been so miserable? My 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 pay has gone up exponentially year over year. And, and I'm less and less happy. And I think part of that is that we fail to evaluate that environment that's going to be a good fit for us as, as well. So I, I, I think that's, that's really fantastic advice. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I think there's, a, there's two scenarios to, to think about from an actionability perspective. There's the bloom where you're planted scenario, which is where you need to take up the torch of becoming a great storyteller and and, and as a great storyteller, you'll, you'll be more successful than your baseline anywhere. Um, you're, you'll be able to, to overcome a lot of obstacles. And there's always going to be obstacles. You just want to, to Randy's point, find an environment that has obstacles that aren't so tall. And so that you can spend more of that storytelling time driving outcomes and, and getting people on the same page. And, you know, it's, it's totally cliche, but totally true that, you know, you don't, you don't, go looking for a job, you go looking for a boss. And uh, Gallup did a survey uh, or a study about two years ago, and the, the study concluded that 82% of managers fail. 
and this is why everybody's so miserable. And you know, that's eighty-two percent to us uh, is basically a hundred percent. If you're in our, you know, that's like randomness. It, it, if you if you succeed eighteen percent of the time, that's like throwing dice with a certain number of sides, and it's just totally random. It's not like our methods are effective. 18% of the time. It's our methods are never effective and we just accidentally get it right sometimes. So it's helpful to know these, these figures uh, because as you're planning your own career, uh, you need to realize that 82% of the people you're going to meet with who might be your boss could be a total bozo. And you need to avoid that total bozo big time because it doesn't matter how good you are you're going to have to be the best story. You're going to have to be Maya Angelou storyteller in order to survive that, that person. So you have to hunt down with a lot of rigor who you're going to work with. And, of course, you want to fit to the project and a fit to the, to the work, but you have to have that fit. It's non-negotiable to have that fit with the leader, knowing that so many of them fail. And that's, that's conclusive data. That's real stuff. So definitely do that. And then once you're there... Try to get everybody finishing every sentence with what am I missing? You know, I have no problem with people saying how they, articulating how they feel about something or what they think is true, as long as they finish the sentence with what am I missing? So, you know, most people spend this much time on the site. What am I missing? Well, you're missing the fact that that's an average and here's the actual breakdown, right? And as long as people are volunteering what they're missing, then you don't have to deal with combat in order to correct people. You, if you, people don't say, what am I missing? They just state these facts. Then you have to say, well, you're wrong. And all of a sudden, now we've got a personal problem and not just a, not just a factual problem. Awesome conversation, Jim. Any, any thoughts you want to throw in to wrap it up? This has been a fun conversation. And again, I think there's... There's lots that, that people can take away. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this one really carefully before we publish it. And I think we, we referenced a lot of things that I want to link up in the in the notes for the show for people to go do some some additional research. But, um, yeah, Jim, last thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I know we're, t- we're tight on time, so we can go ahead and wrap up. Um, but I think that the one thing... Um, you know, I was thinking of as, as we we're as listening to everybody as we we're going through this is, is just because something worked for somebody else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. You know, hearkening back to Google and the open office, you know, everyone was doing that because Google was doing that. Um, don't be a copycat, you know, find your own way. Agreed. Gentlemen, fantastic conversation, Randy. Um, thank you for taking time just getting back to the east coast from your time in the valley i appreciate you jumping on with us evan as always fantastic having you on and um appreciate the time and great discussion yeah guys. thanks for having me take care thanks guys thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at www.33sticks.com. The 33 Tangents podcast is a production of 33 Sticks.